Will you please turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we want everybody to be able to look as we examine God's Word. So these brothers have come forward, they have stacks of Bibles, they're going to make their way down the aisle, and if you need a Bible, just get their attention, they'll get one to you. And it's marked at that passage, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Three months ago, there were numerous retrospectives on the life and presidency of John F. Kennedy because November 22nd of last year marked the 50th anniversary of that awful day in 1963 that uh, was his assassination. JFK had some great moments in his all-too-brief time in office, undoubtedly the greatest of those being his handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis that had brought the world to the brink of an unthinkable nuclear war. But there was another side to our 35th president. He was a serial adulterer. He cavorted with many women, including one intern literally half his age. When his womanizing became known, it actually enhanced his status to some. Now there's a man for you. Two men who idolized and wanted to be like JFK in unfortunately every way were Gary Hart and Bill Clinton. Senator Gary Hart of Colorado was so enamored with Kennedy, he used to mimic some of Kennedy's gestures when speaking. Hand in pocket, pointing the finger for emphasis. We will have a man on the moon by the end of the decade, would say Kennedy and mimic Gary Hart. In 1984, he was considered by many to be the leading candidate for the nomination of his party for the presidential election later that year. But reporters had hounded Gary Hart during the primaries about rumors that he had been unfaithful to his wife. He denied those rumors vigorously. He even challenged the press, follow me around. They did, and a picture soon emerged of him on a yacht appropriately called monkey business, with uh, a young woman in a compromising position. His presidential ambitions were destroyed, and so was his political career. Many of you have never heard of Gary Hart. But we've all heard of former President Bill Clinton. Some of you know the story of his tenure as governor of Arkansas, and that he would use the state police to take him to various dalliances with women. And that all became known when he ran for president, yet he was elected anyway. But of course, we all know he'll clean up his act once he gets in the Oval Office. Well, maybe not. By 1998, he had not only been elected, but re-elected. And news surfaced that he was having an affair with a young intern. He denied it in absolute terms, and he took great pains to cover it up. But the story came out in all of its sordidness, and the country was treated to a two-year saga while little was accomplished in the final years of the Clinton presidency. Now, what do all of these guys have in common? I mean, besides being Democrats. I'm sure I could have found some Republicans that would fit in that category as well. What they all have in common is that they are all in positions of power. And before they seduced others, they had already been seduced by the prestige of their high office and they had absorbed the world's values. 
They each felt a sense of immunity from the consequences of their actions and the sense of entitlement due to who they were. Today we're going to see a national leader who fell into the exact same trap. But this king is no moral leper like the politicians I mentioned and many more that I could have of both parties. King David is said twice in Scripture to be a man after God's own heart. He was God's specific king, a choice to be king. The selection of David as king was not only God's sovereign will, but it was his moral will. God had developed in David the character to be king. Now, what does all this have to do with you and me? We're not having affairs, let's assume. We're certainly not presidents and kings. Well, we'll see that Jesus said that you can commit sexual sin from a distance. So, though you're not in an affair, it's only because the opportunity for some does not present itself. But in your heart, you may have committed adultery already, says Jesus. And, of course, sexual sin is only one of a myriad of sins of the heart and mind. And as for not being presidents and kings, we're going to see that we can each presume upon the high calling that God has given us and so deceive ourselves into a sense of security even as we violate God's word. And so we want to see that together from 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we stand before you again, acknowledging our sin, our tendency toward evil. Lord, I pray that you will help me to have an open heart as I speak for my own sin. I pray that you will help everyone here to have attentive minds, open hearts, so that we will see ourselves as we truly are, so that we then can come to the throne of grace for your forgiveness. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 1 Samuel, David is the hero, as we saw last week. And then the book of 2 Samuel, he becomes king. The hero David gained national prominence while he was yet a teenager. He had slain the giant Goliath. He had made Israel's fighting men cower in fear, had Goliath. And here comes tiny David to slay him. He went on to lead Israel in victorious battle after victorious battle. And so 1 Samuel chapter 18 says the women in Israel sang about David's military conquests, comparing him to King Saul. The Bible says that the women sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. The Bible tells us that David was good looking, an athlete, an accomplished musician, a brilliant poet. The Bible says, quote, all Israel and Judah loved David. David is getting what we might call the rock star treatment. The adoration that David is receiving, though, has set him up for a powerful and common deception. And I have that for you in the first point that is in your outline. It's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out, I encourage you to take a look at that. This deception that David has bought into is this. We think we can manage our sin. We think we can manage our sin. Chapter 11 and verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, 
David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Here's what I want you to notice in those five verses. In all of what transpires here, David is taking the initiative. There are other people involved. There's Joab. There's Uriah. There's Bathsheba. But they're all players in David's story. He, David, is the one who is orchestrating this. He is the one who is managing it. And you see that from the fact that the others say almost nothing. It's David doing all of the action verbs in these five verses. In verse 1, David sends Joab to war. In verse 3, he sent to inquire about the woman. When verse 4 says David sent messengers to get her, it's literally in Hebrew, David sent messengers and took her. So he sent and he took and he slept with her. Joab just does as he's told. And Bathsheba who's already identified by name in verse 3, is just called the woman in verse 5. And all she says is, I am pregnant. It's not even those three words in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's just two words. One commentator says it this way. The action is quick. The verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent, he took, he slept. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There's no adornment to the action. Of the woman, it's only said she returned, she conceived. The action is so stark. There is nothing but action. No conversation, no hint of caring, of affection, of love, only lust. David does not call her by name, does not even speak to her. At the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. The verb that finally counts is conceived. But the telling verb is he took her. And this is chapter 11. And it's hard to believe this is the same guy that you read about in chapter 9 and in chapter 10. The beginning of chapter 9 says this. This is David talking now. Is there anyone to whom I can show kindness? Speaking of his brothers and sisters in the company of Israel. And then in the next chapter, at the beginning of chapter 10, he says, I will show kindness to the king of the Ammonites. So here is David, the one who will show kindness to his own people. He'll show kindness even to his enemies. And now this David is willing to take what he wants and not concern himself with consequences. What has happened to David? David thinks he can manage his sin. Why does he think that? Well, I say in your outline, he thinks he can manage his sin Due to his ability. David believed his own press clippings. Look at the things that I have done. And of course there was much to look at that David had done. 
Not only had David become a legend in Israel, David had become a legend in his own mind. Many of us become legends, at least in our own minds. John F. Kennedy and Gary Hart and Bill Clinton and David had all accomplished many things, all had accomplished many very good things. And it is so easy for us, dear friends, when God has allowed us to accomplish some good things for him, for us to be deceived into thinking we can manage our sin because we have the ability. I can just have this one indulgence, this one dalliance, this one sin. And I have the ability, we think, to moderate our sin. Now, don't make the mistake of looking at David's sin here and thus not being able to make application to your life because you're only looking at the sexual sin. I'll talk some more about that in a bit. But from God's standpoint, everyone has different temptations. And every one of us has certain tendencies toward particular kinds of sins. And so it's not okay to say, I can moderate my sin. I can just gossip a little bit. There's no such thing as innocent gossip. Did you all know that? There's no such thing as innocent slander. And it can become acceptable depending upon the environment that you allow yourself to be in. Now think about David. David is in a position in which it is easy for him to think that whatever I desire, I deserve. And whatever I desire, I can certainly get because I'm the king. You and I can do the same thing. We can surround ourselves with people with people who are not first and foremost interested in our spiritual growth, and therefore we can gradually begin to dismiss sins of all kinds. It's just us talking. It's just my, the gals I go to church with or the guys I go to church with when I gossip. And somehow that makes it okay. He believed his own press clippings. He thought he could manage his sin due to his ability but also, I say in your outline, due to his position. Probably every girl in Israel dreamed of being Mrs. David. And it seems from the biblical account, David wanted every girl to be his wife, or at least his companion. In 1 Samuel 25, the Bible says, while David was married to the godly Abigail, David, quote, had also married in Hanoam. And they became, and they both became his wives. As we come to the book of 2 Samuel, and David's now the king, the Bible says he took four more wives. And it gets worse. Chapter 5 says, David took more concubines and wives. Now, why did he do this? Well, obviously it's sin, but what moved David toward this particular sin? It's because David was absorbed with the approach of the world. You see, oriental kings displayed their wealth and their power in part by the size of their harems. And that's what David has succumbed to now. David had absorbed the worldly view of the trappings of power. Now again, don't miss the application for you and me because you focus on David being a king and the particular sin that David was involved in. The truth of the matter is, whatever environment you are surrounded with can, can make you feel immune to certain kinds of sins. This is why leaders in churches get involved in all sorts of sin. Yes, sexual sin, financial sin, 
political power kinds of sin, we come to believe that we're immune. Or I'm a church member. Therefore, I'm a good person. I hang around with good people. So the sins that I commit can't be that bad. I'm a nursery volunteer. I mean, how bad can I be? I'm justified before God, and therefore all of my sins are forgiven. So what's the big whoop? As the Bible tells us that David was the king, and all of King David's accomplishments, you need to remember, friends, the Bible refers to us as God's royal priesthood. We have a high calling before God, a high calling. If we are not careful, we can abuse that calling by thinking it's no big deal when I sin. Because we bought the lie that I can manage my sin. And I can manage my sin because I have the ability. It won't go very far. And I'm in this particular position before God, within my church, within the eyes of the people that I surround myself with. As I said earlier, it's probable that most people here are not involved in extramarital affairs, maybe just online affairs. Notice, just online affairs. And so, men, women, but particularly men, if you have the situation in your home where you have a man cave and you hide what you do on the computer from your spouse, you need to change that for your sake and for hers. If you're a married couple, you have no secrets. If you hide your phone in your text messages, you need to lose that now. If you find yourself when someone walks into the room, men, clicking the screen to another area really quickly. I've known people who take such precautions with this, thanks be to God, that they make sure that they keep their computer, their family computer, out in the open. we're not careful, we will disregard what God says about sin. Jesus talked about adultery. He said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, if you look with a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery already. But I mentioned gossip. I mentioned slander. You all know that God says, quote, I hate a lying tongue. You say, well, lying, okay, I might gossip a little bit with my friends, my church friends. Might slander a little bit when I'm mad at somebody. Not lying. Well, you know what? It's lying when you say you love Jesus and you disregard his commands. It's lying when you gossip and slander people, but then when you see them, you treat them nice and completely different than you talk about them. So why did David do what he did? Because he thought he could manage his sin, like we often do. He thought he could manage his sin because he had the ability and because of his position. But note secondly in your outline. David thought he could manage his sin, but he also thought he could manage the consequences of his sin, as do we, the consequences. So here David has committed this deed. He's the one in control. He's the one who sends, takes, sleeps with. He's orchestrating all this. He has it all in control, right? But as the story goes in chapter 11, there's a complication. 
he has now experienced unplanned parenthood. She conceived. I'm pregnant. And now he has to carry it up, cover it up. It's not the crime as the Watergate scandal taught us in the mid-70s and now has been repeated many times since. It's not always the crime. Very often it's the cover-up. And verse 6 begins the cover-up. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. A little small talk. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and even a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. (laughs) You see what's happening here. All right, this woman that I've been with is now pregnant. People cannot know that this is my child. Therefore, this man that I have out at war needs to go home quickly. And he needs to be with his wife so that people will know that this child is his. Ah, but a fly in the ointment. Uriah does not go home. David is still in control to this point. In verse 6 he sends. In verse 7 he asks. In verse 8 he orders. At the end of verse 8 he lavishes a gift on Uriah. He's still in the driver's seat, but there's something he can't control and didn't count on, and that's Uriah. And instead of going home, he stays with the other soldiers. And so verse 10 says, David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? (laughs) Why didn't you go home? I mean, you know, flashing forward into the future, after World War II, there was a baby boom. Right? You've been on a military campaign. You haven't seen your wife in a while. Why don't you go and see her? That's what he's saying. But then notice these searing words to David from Uriah in verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as I live, I will not do such a thing. The loyalty of this man, who David has taken advantage of. And David thinks to himself, okay, I'll get him a bit tipsy and he'll abandon this loyalty nonsense and he'll go home. So in verse 12, David said to him, stay here one more day, tomorrow I'll send you back. Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. I am in control. Maybe not. I can manage my sin. Uh, Maybe not. And so without Uriah home, the pregnancy can't be blamed on, on him. So David will take responsibility. He'll take Uriah's place as her husband, which means Uriah has to be removed. Reason hasn't worked. Alcohol hasn't worked. So now he has to do what he has to do. You hear this, friends. Please hear this. One sinful deed leads to another. We think we can manage our sin. We think we can manage the consequences of our sin. 
So verse 14 says, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah, of all things. And then he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. All right, now, this is how much trust he has in the guy that he's sending out to be killed. Sending a letter that he is confident he won't read about his own death warrant. The instructions are carried out with the end result in verse 24. Look down in verse 24. A messenger comes back to David. Everything has transpired just as he said. At the end of verse 24, Uriah is dead. In verses 25 to 27, David gives talking points and words of comfort now to his partner in crime, his subordinate, Joab. He marries the woman, according to verse 26. She is called in verse 26, he married Uriah's wife on purpose. And now the son will be his, but all is legitimate. So the beautiful thing is, King David has managed it perfectly. The consequences are contained. Uriah signed up for duty. He probably would have been killed at some point anyway. He may have rationalized. David has succeeded. Except the end of the chapter, the very last line in verse 27. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. Oh, I took care of Uriah. I ordered Joab. I took Bathsheba. But I didn't count on Yahweh. Notice it says at the end of verse 27, the thing David had, the thing singular. There's a lot of things David has done. Am I right? But that's all the thing. And the thing he had done was to take matters into his own hands and to displease the Lord. You manage the consequences of your sin? That little sin you thought you could manage? that you thought was respectable and okay because of your position, the people you surround yourself with, the environment that you're in. It's just the way we do things. It's just the way we talk. It's just what we do. You know your tongue, friends? And the reason I'm hitting that is because that's a sin of the heart that becomes a respectable sin. Your tongue, according to James chapter 3, can set a whole forest on fire. And I wonder if any of our tongues have poisoned someone's view of another person by the things that we have said. I had that happen to me years ago. I learned a a great lesson. I allowed someone to talk to me, gossip to me, slander to me someone else. This was a person I really didn't know. I just knew of this person. Years later, in God's good providence, I got to know the individual. The individual was nothing like what had been described to me. But for years prior to getting to know this person, whenever I would see her, the lady, those thoughts went through my mind about what had been said about her. And they turned out to be absolutely untrue. At our community group last Sunday, I mentioned the case of Richard Jewell, 
Some of you may remember that name from the 1996 uh, bombing at the Atlanta Olympics. Within days after that bombing, Richard Jewell, who was for a few days a hero because he had saved people, it appeared, now became the prime suspect. And his apartment was raided. I saw clips of it recently going back then. brought back a lot of memories having watched that live. As the FBI would raid his apartment and carry things out, they showed clips of Tom Brokaw and Peter Jennings and others saying things about Richard Jewell that made it clear that he was, was guilty in their minds. The reason he became the prime suspect is because one guy, a college president, where Richard Jewell had worked as a security guard, saw him on TV being hailed as a, a hero. And this college president saw him, and he never liked Jewell. And he called the FBI and said, something's not right here. This guy always likes to be the center of attention. And he gave a number of other attributes that he had observed. And he went from hero to number one suspect overnight. He was exonerated, but not until months later. Richard Jewell died at the age of 44. Complications related to diabetes undoubtedly helped along by the pressure of that ordeal. Dear friends, we have got to see our sin for the ugliness that it is. And you don't get a pass, and I don't get a pass. No matter what your position, no matter who you surround yourself with, no matter who else is doing it, sin never gives us a pass. And so we think we can manage our sin. We think we can manage the consequences of our sin. But notice number three in your outline. God manages. We think we can manage. God manages. And God manages to expose our sin. Now that can sound harsh. Man, God exposes my sin. He's going to lay it out there for everybody. Yikes. Well, not necessarily to everybody, but God does expose our sin and the sin of his children. And it sounds harsh until you realize, hear this, that God exposes it to eliminate it. That's why he exposes it. And I've said in the next four points then in your outline that he graciously God graciously does a number of things. Now, here's why I've said graciously. Because the story that, that follows is all initiated by God. In chapter 11, the verb send is used 12 times. But now it is God who sends. David was in control, or so he thought. But now God graciously takes control. The first line in chapter 12 is God's note of grace. The Lord sent Nathan to David. God is graciously not going to allow David to continue on this slide. David has been sending and ordering and orchestrating and in control, and now God's taking control. And it starts with, and Yahweh, the Lord, sent Nathan to David. And here are the four things that God graciously does through the ministry then of Nathan. First, he graciously convinced David of his sin. He convinces us of our sin. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, 
There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Verse 2 of chapter 12. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David is being meticulously religious here. He's a follower of the law after all. (laughs) And the law says, according to Exodus 22, whoever steals a sheep must pay back four sheep for that sheep. So that's why David's saying this. That's what the law says. This guy needs to be convicted. And of course, we all know what's going to come next. This is all God using Nathan now to show David his sin, graciously so. And I ask you this, friends. Will you be Nathan in the life of someone else? I'm going to tell you guys something. Forgive the grammar, but there ain't nothing that can keep this church from moving forward. If there are a bunch of people who are committed to the Lord God, and as a result of our commitment to the Lord God, are committed to the holiness of one another. And because we're committed to the holiness of one another, we will not sit idly by and participate in sin, or watch sin, or watch a brother or sister go on a path of sin. And if God raises up a congregation like that, uh, Satan hates it, but God loves it. Will you be a Nathan? in the life of another. For some of us, you know someone right now who is engaging in habitual sin that God is calling you to lovingly confront. God sent Nathan to David. He graciously convinces us of our sin. And then he graciously, I say secondly, condemns our sin. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Notice the words despise in verses 9 and 10. Why, David, did you despise the word of the Lord? Verse 10, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised, now notice, you despised me. He graciously condemns our sin. It's an act of God's grace to show us just how heinous and how ugly it is so that we can be moved to then act upon it. But thanks be to God. Thirdly, he graciously forgives our sin. You see, David lived after this. (laughs) David lived to be king a number of years further 
And I say God graciously forgives because David was to be summarily executed as a result of what he did. The law that David had trumpeted just a few verses earlier is the same law that applies, is supposed to apply to him. And in fact, Leviticus chapter 20 says, if a man commits adultery, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. That's what David deserved. God graciously did not give David what he deserved, but only in his grace. And as a result, David was restored. Psalm 51, I encourage you to read that. Psalm 51 is a psalm that David wrote after he had been confronted by the prophet Nathan. And it begins, against you, Lord, against you alone have I sinned. It goes on to talk about what a mess he was as he continued to try to hide his sin. But then God, in his grace, confronted, exposed, and now David could be released of that weight, forgiven by God. David wrote another psalm after this incident when Nathan confronted him. Psalm number 32. And in Psalm 32, the first two verses there say, Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. It's quoted in Romans chapter 4 in your New Testament. And this is all because of the graciousness of our God. Micah chapter 7 says, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Thanks be to God. But hear this, friends, that only happens when you're willing to have your sin exposed. It can only be eliminated when it's exposed. Thank God for the servants who are willing to be used as his instruments to expose it. Then lastly and fourthly, God graciously does all these things. He graciously sustains us after our sin. God restored David. He didn't have to, but he mercifully did so. Now, if you look at the title at the top of your outline, I've called this two-part series on David, From Conquest to Confession. Military conquest and sexual conquest. From all of those conquests, God led David to confession. And I want you to notice the reversal from the pattern that we saw with Abraham and Joseph and Moses, the others who we've looked at in this series in Portraits of Grace. Remember, Abraham was an idol worshiper, a stone worshiper, an Ur of the Chaldees. You remember that Joseph was an arrogant young man that God had to, God had to humble. You remember that, that Moses was a, a murderer and he was fearful. They all started out bad, and God worked in their life to bring them to growth. But in David, you have a different order of events. David started out very well, did he not? And then David fell. Hear this, friends. Every last one of us, no matter where we started, will still struggle with sin until we finish. Thanks be to God, he is gracious and he is not finished with us. The reason this story is in your Bible is because God wants us to understand 
there is only one good king. And he's King Jesus. There's only one who's immune from sin because he is God, the God-man. There's only one who came and though tempted as we are, yet was without sin. And that's the Lord Jesus. He is the one that I need and he is the one that you need. Every moment of every day, not just for the forgiveness of my past sin, but to help me deal with the battle of my ongoing sin. And it is the grace of Jesus that causes you and me to be confronted with our sin as we look into the mirror of God's word, as we surround ourselves with people who care for us enough to tell us when we're going down the wrong path. As a result of that, God is happy to restore us when we sin and restore to us what David called in Psalm 51, the joy of our salvation. I say in your take-home truth, you guys are all happy I got to the take-home truth. Because last week I didn't give it to you. Some of you look tired. You didn't sleep all week worrying about that word and the take-home truth. Only God's grace overcomes our sin. But God's grace, friends, comes in the form of his conviction by his spirit through his word and by people who love us to keep us from going down the wrong path. God does that in the lives of his people. That's why he did it in the life of David. That's why he'll do it in your life if you know Jesus. But it starts with a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does that relationship begin? You acknowledge your sin. You realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that Jesus Christ, the only one sinless, died for your sin. He died and he covers all of your sin. And then he has a relationship with you by his spirit in an ongoing way. And you follow him. You repent of your sin. You go his way rather than yours. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow in just a moment. Let's take this opportunity. Two groups of people in every, in every situation. Only two. People who have a relationship with Jesus and people who don't. So in this room, there are people who do and people who don't. If you don't, you can begin a relationship with Jesus right now. When we pray, you acknowledge your sin. Lord, I'm a sinner in your own words from your heart to God. And I ask you to rescue me. I believe you died for my sin. You're my Lord. I want to follow you with my life. If you know Jesus, then you're someone who welcomes the correction of God's word. If you came in here laden with, with sin and sin struggles, and you're hanging around people who are sinning, and you're all just confirming each other in your sin, and you're convicted of that, thanks be to God. That's God chasing you down. And so as we bow, we're going to thank God. I want to give you one last thing. In three weeks, we will have Ordinance Sunday at our church. Many of you know what that is. We will participate in the two ordinances of the church, the Lord's Table and Baptism. When we have the Lord's table, communion, in three weeks, we will look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which says that we are to examine ourselves. And so what we normally do is we examine ourselves, we take time to ask the Lord to forgive us of any known sin so that we can participate in the Lord's table in a consistent manner, something consistent with who he is and what he's done. But you know, a lot of the sins that we commit are interpersonal. And you don't just ask God for forgiveness on interpersonal sins, right? 
From whom do you have to seek forgiveness if there's an interpersonal issue? If you sinned against someone, you go to that someone. In fact, Jesus says that in Matthew 5.23. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that there is something between you and your brother, leave your gift at the altar. Go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Within the next three weeks, oh Lord God, be gracious enough to move on the hearts of your people so that you will reconcile us to yourself and to one another. And then watch what God will do through his church. Let's bow together. Father, we stand amazed yet again at the truth of your word, the power of your word. Because in it you give us truth, an unvarnished truth. You show us the heroes of the faith, but you show them to us warts and all. David was a mere man. Anything he accomplished, he only accomplished by your strength. Every hero of the faith in Hebrews 11 is a mere man or woman who could only do what they did because of you. When they fall, they fall on their own because we wander from you, because we take matters into our own hands. Oh Lord, how much like me they are. How much like us they are. Thank you for showing their lives to us so that we can learn and be warned. Lord, grant us hearts of wisdom to apply your truth. Help us to go from this place determined to act upon what we've seen in the life of David and being restored to you in welcoming those who convince are your instruments to convict us and convince us of sin. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who came into this room without a relationship with the Lord Jesus. I pray that your spirit is moving upon their hearts and drawing them out of the world into yourself. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.